Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If you have the Hebrew text before you, you don't have a chapter 4. But there's probably nobody that has a Hebrew text, so just forget what I just said. God's wonderful word. What happens when Christ comes to earth again? What will happen when Christ, he's come the first time, the Virgin Mary ministered among his people and then was crucified, buried, rose again the third day, ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and he is coming again. What will it be like? What will happen when Christ returns to this earth again? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, what we learn about you from your word. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. There is no one else we would rather have than you. You have proved yourself over and over again, and you are coming again. And those of us who are believers, we are excited about you coming again. We understand, Father, that when the Lord Jesus comes, he will be glorified. He will come in glory with all of his angels. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for dwelling within us. Lord, we we thank you that we do not have to travel to some building, some temple, some tabernacle to meet you. Because the Spirit of God dwells within us as your children. We love you. We commit ourselves to you. We acknowledge that we are a slave of yours, and we welcome that word. We commit ourselves to you. We realize that you own us, and we are delighted in that we would have it no other way. You are so good to us and so tender. And, Father, we realize also you've given us of your spirit that he is our teacher. And may we accurately hear the word of God this morning. May our hearts be open to receive it not only just to know it, but we would obey it. We would not audit your word, but we would be obedient children. So we are excited for what you have for us this morning. And we give you great praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, Jesus has come in his first advent and lived among us, was crucified, died for our sins, and rose again. And he is coming the second time, but it is not as the gentle Savior. He is coming as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is coming as Judge. He is not coming to invite people to Christ in that sense. He is coming to make a difference. He is coming, as we read this morning, as Paige read to us from Matthew 24. He is going to set the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, the believers on the right, the unbelievers on the left, and God will judge. He answers all questions that time. Is there a God? Has God forgotten us? Is God coming again? And when he comes, what will he be like? And the prophet Malachi sets that in the setting of his day. Remember, as we have gone through these books and some other minor prophets with major messages, The cultural background of that day was simply that there had been many of the Jewish people who had been taken into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. 
Now the Persians had taken over. Now they were in the Persian culture, and they were doing quite well. They were prospering. Not all of them. There were poor people among them. But the mass of Jewish people had integrated into the culture, and they were doing quite well. But they were kind of like us in America. They wanted to go back, in that sense, to their homeland. They, uh, they wanted to go back and see it as they heard from their fathers from their forefathers about the great temple now had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And they politically, in one sense, wanted to go back and rebuild it. And they wanted to see the fine city again, the sacrificial system. And they were so excited. And over 50,000 of them traveled for over 10 months, maybe up to a year, to go back and reestablish all those things. This is our country. This is our nation. And as they were busy doing that, and basically, as we understand from the prophet Malachi, there were those who were really righteous, who really had a relationship, were very fervent about what they were doing. And yet there were a mass of them who had simply, as we have had in every era, they had just really had playing the game of religion. And so they were beginning to murmur and dispute among them that, who is this God that we came back here for and we've done all this work? And nothing's happening. We thought the prophets said to us that when we got our work done, Christ would come and he would get rid of the Persians and all other nations that would come and we would have our kingdom. We have come back here for God to come and give us what we want. Sounds like modern day, doesn't it? We do this in order that God will give us what we want. We got it backwards. We do this to honor God. He is the God, not us. And so we find in Malachi's day that these people began to murmur to one another, God doesn't care. I wonder if God is coming back again. He certainly hasn't done anything for us now. And as we studied last week, did these people not realize that when we speak to one another that we think we are speaking in privacy? We're really not because God's always listening. It's a book of remembrance as we learned. And so God hears everything that we say. But they really was not overly concerned with that because, you know, there's not going to be a judgment day. And so the last six verses of the book of Malachi, God gives his perspective. Let's take a look at it. The major point we want to look at this morning is very simple. Prepare to meet God. That's a great message for us. Prepare to meet thy God in some translations. Prepare to meet God. Am I prepared? As a Christian, how can I be any more prepared? Is there something else I need to do? Do I need to work harder? Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, and say, well, I really, I, I try to avoid that subject. Well, you can't avoid it. <laughs> because God says, I'm coming. You may put it off today, but it'd be a very dangerous thing to do. He is coming, and he's coming as judge. Let's read the text. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold... The day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day 
which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming and the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. In Jewish traditions, they don't like verse 6. So when they read verse 6, they go back and read verse 5. So it ends with something other than a curse. But no matter how you read the text, no matter how you change the verses, he is coming, and he's coming as a righteous judge. Just not a judge, but a righteous judge who keeps the records, knows everything that everybody has ever said. And he will bring it forth. Well, let's look at the results of that day. Let's look at verse 1 carefully of Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming. This is a day of judgment. It is coming. Well, what's it like? It's burning. The Hebrew word there throughout the Old Testament basically brings this image of hot and consuming action. It's like a furnace. Remember in Daniel when the Babylonians set up a furnace for Daniel's three friends? Heated seven times, they were made out of clay. It was kind of like a dome. We might call it a beehive. But those guys could really pump it up. It was hot. It was more than a sauna bath. In fact, it was a scorching one. And only by God's protection could you survive it. But nevertheless, something similar to that. And he says it's like a furnace. Well, why why is there a day coming like that? Why is this burning like a furnace? Who's it for? Notice the scripture. And all, not some, all of the arrogant. The word there means those who are self-willed and not humble toward the Lord. They know, as the people did in Malachi's day, they knew the law of Moses. But they were so self-willed. They were arrogant They were obstinate. I know, I know, but I refuse to respond, is the idea here. He goes on to say here, and not humble toward the Lord. I will not repent. I will not change my ways. I know the way, but I will not change my way to God's way. Every evildoer, he goes on to say, Those who violate the law of God deliberately. Again, I know where the fence line of the law is. I know God says don't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You see, it's not innocence. It's not, I didn't know. I do know. I clearly see it. I just refuse to obey it. Sounds somewhat normal. You know anybody like that? Look at me. I'm like that. My basic nature is, don't tell me I can't because I'll put all my forces into what? Doing it. You say, where did you get that from? My dad, my mom, and on down to you get into Adam. (laughs) Your children are like that. Don't go out and play with your good clothes on. 
Five minutes later, Mom, I tore my pants. What did you do? Well, I was outside doing this. It's just inherent within us to rebel against God. And we continue to do that in our adult life. And it is only Christ that can change that. Church can't do it. I can't do it. Only the living Christ, only when you and I become the slave of Christ by His Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells, radically changes us to say, God, I agree. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm not going to go outside and play with my silly adult games. Because life is better in obedience to you than life that I've ever had playing with the world. These are the connotations that the prophet is firing up. He goes on to say that it's for those who are arrogant and every evil doer. It will, they will be like chaff. Uh, we would call it on farm life today, uh, straw, dry. Doesn't take much to get a fire going with straw. Doesn't last long, but boy, does it ever what? Burn hot. Okay. And the day that is coming will set, this day that is coming will set these arrogant, evil doers like you and me. And only by the grace of God have we been rescued from that. Amen. Don't ever look at the world and say, wow, I can't believe how rotten you are. Sure you can believe it. It used to be like that. <laughs> And only by the grace of God have we changed. Well, I, you might say, well, I didn't rob a bank. I didn't commit murder. I didn't use four-letter words. There's nothing any more gross than knowing what to do and saying, God, I'm not going to do it. See, I didn't curse. I just said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to live life the way I want to live it. See, I didn't curse again. I didn't rob a bank. I didn't shoot anybody. I'm just arrogant. <laughs> That's the point here. You see, I can obey the law. I can, I can go to church. I can stay within the, pe- uh, the speed limit. I'm still guilty. <laughs> Only God can take that nature away from me and from you or from anyone. And on that day His coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Just a metaphorical way of saying that that person will be totally consumed, not annihilated. There is nowhere in Scripture that you have any evidence of annihilation of the wicked. Consumed, yes, but not annihilated. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? But look at verses 2 and 3. The results of the day of judgment for the righteous. We see it for the wicked. What about the righteous? But for you who fear, now you're not born that way. You and I were never born with reverence for God. That's a God thing. But no matter how innocent that newborn is, it is still true. And it will evidence itself in very short time. Waking you up, saying to you, I don't know how to do a diaper. You do it for me. (laughs) And we go through our adult life with things like that similar. You do it for me. World, come and do it for me. World, take care of me. Government, take care of me. And on and on it goes. 
But for you who reverence my name, the son of righteousness, which is a metaphorical term of God, we find that throughout other passages in the Old Testament, speaking of Christ, the son of righteousness will rise with healing. The word is restoration. Christ will come. He will bring restoration. It's in His wings metaphorically. And you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. Now, for those of us who may be familiar with farm life, you know, you, you, you take a calf and pin it up for a week or two for whatever reason, and then you let it loose in the spring. What happens? Wow. If you're not careful, it'll walk all over you. Last night, Anita and I just happened to look out our, our back door and in our backyard were at least, at times, 10 to 12 deer, I counted. And there was the big mamas there, you know. I only saw one buck, and they were just kind of walking around. But these little ones that had been born recently, they were hopping and playing and biting each other and kicking each other, and it was just marvelous to watch them. (laughs) I thought, here's this text being lived out. You see, the older ones were not like that, but the young ones. And it says here that when you and I are, when we experience restoration spiritually, life is new. Life is exciting. Never lose that. Never lose that excitement of living for Christ. How do you maintain that? You walk with Him. You walk with Him. You spend time with Him. Life As we get older, physically, it goes downhill really fast. I can tell you that. But spiritually, wow, you begin to know the Lord better. You begin to see things from a different standpoint. And you say, oh, Lord, give me strength to serve you. That's a God thing. It's not us. It's a God thing. He goes on to say in verse 3, you will tread down the wicked. Look, you believe things are turned upside down today and the wicked are winning? Well, it appears to be that way today, but it will not be that way for eternity. You will walk. The idea there is that you will triumph over them. Look at the wording here. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Burning in verse 1, consumed, ashes, Under the soles of your feet. On the day which I am preparing. What is he preparing? It's not heaven. That's not the reference in verse 3. He's not preparing heaven. He's preparing the day of what? Judgment. Sometimes we can say, well, I'm a Christian. Great. You'd say, it's not important to me. Yeah, it is. For a couple of reasons. One is, there are people who have not prepared for it still need to hear the gospel. And number two, are you sure? Are you sure that you're prepared? Answer the question to yourself. Am I prepared for the day? Will I be there or will I escape that day? Well, I will escape that day. I'm not that bad. I go to church I try to keep the commandments. Just remember, the commandments condemn you. They don't save you. There's never None of the God's commandments will save you. They condemn you. That's the reason why he gave them. 
He gave the law of Moses to the Israelites to say, you can't meet my righteousness. Oh, yes, we can. You just give us the law and we'll show you how well we can do. He gives them the law. And now for over 3,000 years, look at the nation of Israel. Not one day have they ever done it. And what was God's purpose? You can't, you need help, you can't do it by yourself. You must look to a divine one, my son, who will come. He is the righteous one. He died for the sins of the world. But notice in verse 4, how were the people to prepare for that day? Well, they were to remember the law. And this is sometimes how we misunderstand the Scriptures. Matthew 4, verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant. This is Malachi, the prophet, saying to the people of Israel, You want to prepare for that day of judgment? Well, remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded in Horeb for all of Israel. And what should you have found? You should have found that I fail. I can't do it. No matter how hard I try, I'm always breaking God's law. God says, thank you for your honesty. Help is on the way. How do you resolve that? You give your life to Christ. You see, on the day of judgment, those who will not allow or permit or submit Christ to take your judgment for you, you will have to pay for it yourself. And you will die in your sins and you will be consumed. Or by faith, because of what Christ historically did some 2,000 years ago on a cross, who was buried and was resurrected to prove to us that he can do that and forgive us of our sins and give us new life. He takes our judgment for us. Isn't that simple and isn't that neat? That you and I as a believer to say, I have no way, Lord, of being righteous like you. It's impossible. What can I do? God says nothing. All you can do is repent, acknowledge your sins, Turn to Christ, who's done it all for you by faith and faith alone. And he has taken your judgment for you. He died in your place. Amazing. That's the love of God. And so he says, remember, I want you to recall the law of Moses because by obedience to the law, you cannot save yourself. Then in verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. As you prepare, there will be evidence of the day of judgment. What's the evidence? What should I be looking for? I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Now, you had already sent Elijah prior to Malachi's day, correct? And God took him. He didn't have physical death. God took him. But here he says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great, not in that day, but prior to the coming of that great, that unusual and terrible, dreadful day of the Lord. You see, the Lord describes it. 
This is not a day of joy. This is a day of dread. This is a day of judgment. This terrible day of the Lord. Verse 6, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Purpose? So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now we've got to stop here. We have to stop and say, what's happening here? It's a day of judgment that is coming. Prepare to meet your God. Prepare for judgment. But just before that great and terrible day of the Lord, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Well, what will he do? He will restore. He's talking to the Jewish people of Malachi's day. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. There will be restoration where there has been separation. And the hearts of the children to their fathers will be resolved. There will be healing in the land. There will be restoration. Things will be made right because of God's work. So that I will not come. If this doesn't occur, then I will have to smite your land. You will have to face judgment. You say, wow, I'm totally confused. Okay, let's look at it carefully. Remember, the covenant that God made with Israel is to a nation. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you, Israel. Number two, Israel. You as my nation are my elect nation from all other nations of the world. My covenant is with you nationally. Now, obviously, to be a nation, you have to have people. And those people were individually responsible to God, as Jewish people. They had to have salvation the same as you and I do. They looked to the cross, and by faith, as they understood it very faintly, but as they understood it through the sacrificial system, they placed their faith that that would take care of their sins. You and I look back and say, historically, that is exactly what happened. And I place my faith in that which did happen some 2,000 years ago. Now come back to the text again. In verse 6, he says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children. Israel will be reborn. Israel today is a political entity in total disobedience to Almighty God. They have been scattered to the four corners of the world as a judgment of God, stated in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. So we have a whole historical realm of proof that it is true. And they still are scattered more outside of the nation of Israel day than inside. So they're still, and even though they come back as a nation, it is a political Zionist nation. They have no relationship with God. They would flat out just deny that Christ, their Messiah, has come. They would say, there is one coming, but this Jesus is not him. So they still live in disobedience. What God was saying to Malachi to give to his people, before that awful day of judgment, I will not consume my nation, my elect nation. 
I will intervene and restore them divinely. Even though the Jewish people will be responsible individually for their responses, so there will be sheep and there will be the goats as we read, Folks, if we do not get that distinction, the Bible becomes an extremely confusing book. You and I must make that distinction. And so God is promising here that there is a day coming prior to the day of judgment in which Israel will be restored. You'd say, is there any proof of that? Yes. And this is largely going to determine how you view the Scriptures. The scriptures must be consistent. One of the things that you and I always must look at is to say, oh, I think this is true, and I've done this more times than I would like to remember. Wow, have you seen this in scripture, Carl? Wow, Paul, you elders, have you seen, have you seen what I've seen? Oh, wow, this is a beautiful truth. Then come to find out I haven't compared scripture with scripture. Well, yeah, it seems like that's true there, Pastor, but have you looked at this and this and this and this and say, oh my, no I didn't. That's what happens. It's the reason why we must be students of the Word of God, reading the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. Be that as it may. Well, you say, is there proof of this? Yes. And let's do it quickly. Now, this Elijah, did he really come again because he didn't experience physical death? Did he come again? It appears that's what the prophet is saying. I mean, what else can you get out of verse 5? Behold, I am coming to send you Elijah the prophet. That's what, it's, that's what it says. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Does God say anything else about the prophet Elijah? Do I have the full picture here? It's called progressive revelation. God doesn't pour everything out in Genesis. We read from Genesis to Revelation, and we keep accumulating. It's like going to school. You start off with addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, then you kind of step it up a little bit, you do some business math, and then you take a course in algebra with all those unknown whatever they are. And once you get that under your belt, you, you go on to trigonometry and geometry and then calculus and on into the upper atmosphere. Okay. There would be those who would say, and there seems to be some evidence, that after Malachi gives his prophecy in verse 6, God shuts any further revelation down for 400 years. That's the reason why we call it the 400 silent years. God had no prophet speaking to Israel because they just turned a deaf ear. So God didn't, in that sense, waste his time in that sense. He said, okay, if you don't want to hear from me, you don't want to obey, you don't want to re- repent and change then you got the next four centuries by yourself. And if you read that historically, that is not a good time for Israel. And there are those in that period of time even said, we have no prophet among us. They admitted it. So when you have, and so God sovereignly is setting this up for John the Baptist. You know him. He's the one that eats bugs and dresses like a bear. Okay? Not like the rest of us. And so... We hear the first thing in Matthew, John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, there He is, there's Jesus. 
after 400 years, the voice of John the Baptist. Now, the question we have to ask very quickly is, well, John was not Elijah? Why? We know especially that John the Baptist is not Elijah because in John 1.21, they asked him, the Pharisees and those of that day asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. So I understand that to be he's not what? <laughs> he's not Elijah. Are you, are you the prophet? Not a prophet. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no, I'm not Christ. In Matthew 11:14, Jesus said, and if you are willing to accept it, if you're willing to accept my message and repent, Jesus said, if you're willing to repent, the king, repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? It's at hand. It's near. It's right here. All you've got to do is one thing. What was that one thing? Repent. If you Jews will repent of your sins, I'll give you the kingdom. I'll give you everything you've always looked forward to. I'm not going to do it. No. And the answer is no. <laughs> and by the time the Lord finishes His ministry in 30-31 A.D., the answer is still no. And that's the reason that week which started with, oh, son of David, you have come. Oh, you marvelous person, you great Messiah, you have come to get rid of Rome for us. We love you. He says, well, repent. Us? We're Jews. We don't need to repent. You need to tell Pilate and the Gentiles to repent. We're good. Moses, he's our man. Until they cried in the streets, crucify him, crucify him. That's the base and core of mankind. That's not some mankind. That's all mankind. What do you think would happen on the streets of Beckley today if Jesus Christ came and said, Repent! Repent! Do you think us, as a city, would fall on our knees and repent? No. It's impossible. You can't. Because it's all of God. We would crucify Him again and again and again and again. And so are you willing to accept it? John himself is Elijah who was to come. You say, well, now, Lord, I'm really confused because you say John was Elijah. No, if you would repent, he would be one that comes like what? Elijah. But you are not repenting, so no, there is no likeness. Well, let me give you one other one, Matthew chapter 10, because this one's often misunderstood. Because we have this idea from cultural Christianity that Jesus was this guy who came and just said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. I have come to love you. Well, Jesus had a different kind of love. It wasn't a love, do anything you want, like parents do today. Children, I just want you to know I love you, so do anything you want. Jesus is not like that. What is Jesus like? Well, listen to him in verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You said, Jesus said that? Yes. Look at the text. Verse 35, For I come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Have you ever seen that one? And a man's enemies will be the members of his what? Household. Jesus said, I have come. You know what this sword is? It's truth. 
You go to work tomorrow and say, I want to tell you, you're my supervisor. I want to tell you the truth. As far as I know, from what you have said, you are lost, you're not a Christian, and you're going to spend an eternity absent from God in a place called hell. Try that one. And see that he doesn't jump out of his chair, wrap his arms around you and say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so glad you told me this awful truth. It's not going to happen. Truth always divides. May we as Christians today understand that. If you just preach the truth, we could all love one another. Now, I'll tell you what, you'll really have to work at loving one another because truth will always be what? Set you at odds. We've all experienced that. In Matthew 17, 11, and he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So we take from that one in Elijah's likeness. Now, if God's going to send Elijah, that's fine. He can do that. But it appears when you compare Scripture with Scripture, it probably is referring to one in the likeness. Be that as it may, either way. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome says this, For I do not want you, brethren, so there will be both Jew and Gentile present in the church at Rome. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Greek word for mystery is, I do not want you to be uninformed of this, what has been a mystery, but now I am here as an apostle to reveal to you what this mystery is. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come. Remember, Jesus uses this phrase in Luke 21. The times of the Gentiles, marked off from the Babylonian captivity in 606 B.C., from that point off, you can mark it historically in any history book. Israel will never be of its own authority, by itself an entity, from that time until Christ comes. You say, oh, that's not true. Israel today has its own nation, their own entity, their own parliament. If it was not for the United States, Israel will even admit today, we will not do anything without approval from other nations. You hear the rhetoric, bottom line is, they always ask permission because they're still under Gentile domination. And they will never be set free to rule under Christ the King until he comes. And this is what Paul was saying. Notice in verse 26. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. All that is left just prior to the day of judgment, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth again, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, which is synonymous with what? Israel. Okay. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, as you know. So here we have it. What is going to happen to the nation of Israel? They're going to continue their path of disobedience until Christ comes. And then they're going to say, Wow. We did crucify our Messiah 2,000 years ago, or what it will be in that time. You say, well, you're kind of reading between the lines. Look at Zechariah 13.8. Zechariah 
It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord. Now the context, which we don't have time for, but you can read it on your own. Read chapter 12 and 13. He's talking about the end times just prior to Christ coming again. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Two-thirds of Israel's population at the end of the tribulation hour, just prior to the coming of Christ, will be slaughtered. You've got approximately 15 million Jewish people today on the face of the earth, two-thirds, so you're talking about 10 million Jews will die approximately within seven years. The tribulation is a holocaust. The tribulation would absolutely eradicate the planet of humanity unless what Jesus said in Matthew 24, I will not allow it to go any longer lest man would wipe himself out. Now watch this. Two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third part, the third part that is left will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested to find the pure. They will call, now notice this, They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is what? It's been centuries since Israel has said that. Now look carefully at the text. Who does that work, Israel or God? God does. He refines them, all those personal pronouns there. He refines Israel as silver is refined. He tests them. And that enables them to call upon what? That's how you came to Christ for most of us. We realized, I have nothing. (laughs) Things are not as beautiful as I thought they were. I'm lost. I'm undone. I've got to meet God at the judgment. I'm not prepared. What am I doing? (laughs) What am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my family? Do I believe that I can hide from God? I'll avoid the judgment. Somehow I'll end up in heaven without Jesus. And you and I stopped and said, wow, amazing how smart I got. Okay, Jesus, you saved me now. It didn't happen that way. Jesus brought you to the brink, and Jesus informed you, enlightened you by his spirit, and you'd say, my goodness, this really makes sense. You didn't get smart. (laughs) You just got the spirit of God removing what? The blindness from your eyes and my eyes. They are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Prepare for judgment. Israel will be delivered. Jews, individuals, will have to face God and give an answer for their relationship. Therefore, you have the sheep and the goats. That's very essential to prophecy. In your notes, just quickly, and I'm not going to take any time with this, I was hoping to put it on the screen, but I cannot get it big enough so that you can see it. So I put it in your notes. The purpose of it being in your notes, if you take away just momentarily uh, the red box and the red arrow and just look at the black stuff, that's how Malachi's day would have seen future events. They they didn't see everything you and I see. When you look at the, the black box on your sheet and the red arrow, we have inserted... Now, since that time between Christ's birth and Christ is king, God's given us a whole lot of events. The Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, the church age, the rapture, 
the tribulation. And so when you look at these minor prophets, you're looking at it from that perspective. All right, let's wrap it up. So, the big point is this, prepare to meet God. You and I as believers would say, yes, I'm prepared. How did you do it? Well, I joined a church. I got baptized. You're not prepared. How did you get prepared? I asked Jesus to give me of his righteousness, because I don't have any. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness has filthy rags, saith the Lord. So, Lord, I ask you to give me. I don't deserve it. I have nothing to pay for. I ask you to give me of your righteousness so I can have a changed life. So, therefore, I do repent. I repent that my righteousness is not good enough. I submit. I'm willing to become a slave. I'm willing to surrender to you. And, therefore, my ticket to heaven is your righteousness that has been given to me. So what did God say to the Israelites? As you'll see on the next frame there. They should have gotten this. The wicked will be destroyed by God. The righteous will repent toward God, as we've just read. The nation of Israel will avoid destruction. Those are the major things in our text. What's the timeless principles that's true no matter where you're Jew or Gentile or where you live in the world or what time in history you're living? The wicked are always destroyed. The righteous avoid what? Those are at least two timeless principles true for anyone, anywhere. The wicked are destroyed because they don't repent. The righteous avoid destruction because they do repent. It's very simple. How do I apply that to my life as a believer living in the 21st century? Well, number one is this. God will clearly distinguish between the wicked. It may seem like the wicked are winning. Our country is going downhill at an incredible rate. Is there any hope? I don't know about America. I really don't. Only God knows. But I know this. The wicked do not win in the end. We win. Christ wins. And so God is preparing us to rule over wickedness. And in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years, when you and I rule and reign with Christ, both Jew and Gentile, I tell you, those who raise and overtly bring out their wickedness, God will deal with it immediately. There's no court case. There's no lawyers. There's no judges. It will be immediately dealt with in an instant. That ought to bring us great encouragement. Not that people are destroyed. But, Lord, I am prepared to meet you, not because of me or not because of my good deeds. I am prepared to meet you because you have lovingly given me of your righteousness as a gift of salvation. And so, Lord, may I tell others about this great gift in which, as we look at that day of judgment, our judgment has already been paid for. Wow. Our judgment has already been paid for through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that worth worshiping about? (laughs) When you look at your children and say, I have something to offer you. It may not be much as far as monetary things. I tell you, sit down at my kitchen table and let me give you the greatest gift in the world. As we say to our kids, don't worry about inheritance. Your mother and I are not worrying about it and we've already spent it. So don't have any anxiety over what you're getting when we're gone. Seriously. 
It's an amazing thing that it's free. So many people turn it away because it's free. It's real. It's genuine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the delight that you have given to us to be together as a congregation. Lord, even though the world is in turmoil, there are things that we do not know. There are concerns that we have, and rightly so. But we who are believers in you, that you have chosen us before the foundations of the world and called us to yourself, even in the midst of a chaotic world, we understand that our purpose is to be a light to this world. And you will enable us to do that. And that our judgment has already been taken care of by Jesus Christ. We are free. There is now no more condemnation because of your shed blood. Father, may we want to tell others about how they can have no condemnation through Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we pause just for a second in quietness in this auditorium, whether we are a believer or not a believer, we still have to respond to you. Worship is a response. Our heart to yours, our mind to yours, our emotion, our logic. Father, right now in our midst, we will give an answer to you today. Thank you for taking my judgment, or my response would be, God, I'm not prepared. If you would take me today in death, or even if I'm alive when you come, I am not prepared. God, help me to be prepared. Lord, if this is true and this is real, then Lord, I ask you, help me. Help me. Father, again, we thank you for saving us. And we trust you and may your will be accomplished for Christ's sake. Amen.